You're listening to a sermon originally recorded by Schweitzer United Methodist Church in Springfield, Missouri. Check us out online at sumc.co. And if this sermon blessed you, be sure to share it with someone else. Thank you so much for listening. Now, on to the message. Well, friends, good morning and welcome. My name is Spencer, and I'm the pastor here. If you have your Bibles, we're in Philippians chapter 2 today. This is part 3 of a five-week series um, called Navigating Change because we are all in a season of change. You have a new pastor. I'm in a new church. There's all kinds of change that's taking place in our lives, even beyond just uh, what's happening at the church. And so we're spending five weeks, my first five weeks with you, to talk through change and how to navigate change. And, and really the question that we're, we're wrestling with each week is, is not just how do we navigate change, but, but rather how do followers of Jesus navigate change? How do, how do people who believe in the resurrection navigate change? Those who have hope for everlasting life, how do we navigate change and, and walk through this? Because change is hard, and yet the only constant in life is change. And so how do we wrestle through this? How do we navigate this? How do we have faith and trust as we work through this? Now, to, to guide this conversation, I'm not just giving you my opinions here. We're, we're reading through a book of the Bible. We're reading through Philippians because Philippians, it's this little book in the New Testament, but it's all about change. It's, it's written by Paul. It's a letter that was written by Paul to this local church. Paul started this church, and the reason he's writing this letter is because he's been arrested, not because of anything bad he did, but because of his witness for Christ. And, and now he sits in a Roman prison. He's awaiting his execution, and he's writing this letter to, to this church that he started. And, and that's just, like, wrap your mind around that for just a second. The founding pastor of your church, like the person who brought you hope in Jesus Christ, the person who's mentored you and inspired you and shepherded you. He, he now is in chains awaiting execution, and, and he's writing this letter. What would you be feeling if you were one of these people who got this letter? How, how scared must that church be? The questions that that church must be asking about, you know, what's to come and, and what's it going to look like in the future and, and what's going to happen now that Paul's no longer here? Like, these are all questions of change. And so we're reading through this letter to to discern and to hear, well, what does he teach them about the change that they're going through, and and what do we learn from that? So we're going to jump into this today, Philippians chapter 2. We're going to go through the whole chapter today, and uh, as we do this, we're picking up right where we left off last week. So here's how it starts. Chapter 2, verse 1. It says, therefore, therefore is remembering last week where we talked about surrendering the outcome to the Lord. So he says, therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ... If any comfort from his love, if any tenderness, I'm sorry, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interest of the others. Verse 5, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Now, how would you describe the mindset of Christ Jesus? Well, Paul's going to describe it in the next few verses in a poem. And what's really fascinating about this poem is that most scholars believe that this is one of the earliest Christian hymns, like as a worship song what we're about to read here that he's quoting here. So I'm going to sing it to you. And if you thought that that was true, <laughs> like I've got some land I can sell you real quick. Let's just talk after service. Verse 6, speaking this poem, goes like this. Here's the mindset of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, 
did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself, notice it's him doing it, it's not passive, this is active stuff, he's doing it. He made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Now, I want you to notice that there was a progression in what we just read. It started off with Jesus being in the same nature of God, but choosing not to use that to his own advantage, even though he could have. He, he made himself nothing. He took the very nature of a servant. He humbled himself. He became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Here's the mindset of Jesus. I am going to do absolutely everything and anything I can for them, for you. That's the mindset of Jesus. I will make myself less and less and less and less for the sake of them. That's the mindset of Christ Jesus. The poem goes on, verse 9. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge. I learned it as confess. I like confess better. Confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, there is so much we could say about this passage. I mean, books and books and books and books and books are written about this poem. I've probably written a dozen sermons about that, and I won't lie, it was a busy week, and I was real tempted to copy and paste a little bit here. <laughs> there is so much to be said here, and I've preached on this a lot, but, but what I want to do as we're talking through the series is I don't want to get into the weeds of this particular passage, although there is so much that we could dig at and unpack here, but rather what I want to do is I want us to see the big picture view of chapter two. That's where we're going today. I want us to see the big picture view of chapter two. What does this teaching in chapter two look like in the big picture, the 30,000 foot view? Because there is a theme that is woven through the rest of this chapter that is so incredibly important if we are going to navigate change in a way that honors God. So let's just keep going through here. And what we're going to do now is I'm just going to highlight some verses for the rest of the chapter. I'm not going to read the whole chapter to you, but just highlight some verses because what I want you to see is the big picture view of chapter 2. So I'm going to skip to verse 14. It says this, Do everything without grumbling or arguing, even if the air conditioner is out perhaps. Do everything without grumbling or arguing. I'm just caught by that word everything. It just really catches my mind. So that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like the stars of the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. Notice that how we speak to one another is an indication of our witness. I'm going to skip down to verse 19. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy. Timothy was mentored by Paul. So I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon that, that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare. For everyone looks out for their own interests, but not those of Jesus Christ. It sounds like have the mindset of Christ Jesus. He's going on for a few more verses and describes how Timothy looks out to other people. And then verse 25, let's skip to there. It says, but I think it is necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my, fellow, my brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. For he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. And then for the next several verses, Paul's going to talk about Epaphroditus and his, the sacrifices that he has made in the church and what he has done for, those, for that body. I want you to see this. We see this theme, this thread that is woven through chapter two, because if you put chapter two together, really what you see is that this is about one thing. The whole chapter is about relationships. 
And specifically, it's about Christian relationships. It's about how we work together and live together. And it's about how we serve one another and live in relationship with one another. Because, because this, this theme, it's woven from, from the mindset of Jesus to Timothy to Epaphroditus. It's all, about, it's all about relationships. You see, there is a gift that God has given to each of us. And this gift that he's given to all of us, when we receive it in our lives and when we utilize this gift, because sometimes you may receive a life, but you don't, a gift, but you don't really use it. But when you use this gift, this is a gift that God is going to use to grow you, to strengthen you, to comfort you, to ground you. This is a gift that is going to, to produce in you a, the life that God sees within you. And, and this gift that I'm talking about, it's what we see in chapter two, it is, it's the church. The church is this gift that God has given to us that will help us navigate change, will ground us and grow us, will strengthen us and comfort us. Now, when I say the church, here's what I mean. First, I don't mean a building. I don't mean a location. A church is not a building. Schweitzer is not a location that's on East Sunshine. That's not what a church is. Nor is a church a denomination. It's not just a set of doctrine or a set of organizational structure. That's not what a church is. What a church is, is it's relationships. A church is fellowship. It's, it's, it's people coming together and sharing their life together. That's why we talk about a church family. This is what a, what a church is. And so when I say God has given us a gift in, in the church that's going to grow us and strengthen us and, and build us up, I'm talking about the relationships that we build with one another because I'm, I'm telling you, this is going to be the primary way that God grows us is through each other. It's, it's through this gift that he's given us to grow us. So I want to unpack that idea for a few moments here. I want to unpack this idea that the primary way God is going to grow us and strengthen us and comfort us and lead us and ground us is through the church. i got two ways I want to, I want to unpack this. Here's the first one. You know, I've been on this listening tour, going to different homes and, and uh, asking the church questions, and it's always the same questions I'm asking each week. And, and in, in a few different places, or actually all of the places I've, I've kind of at the end, I've set aside a time for people to ask me questions. And in a few different places, I've had some people ask me uh, the question, why did you become a pastor? Which is a good question, because I, I sometimes like, ask myself that, that, that same question. It's a good question. And uh, as, I, as I've reflected on that question, I've answered it in different places, I realized that the reason I became a pastor, it's not because I had some like, miraculous thing happen in my life. Like I never had this moment where the par- clouds parted and the voice of the Lord spoke to Spencer and said, thou shall, because that's how God speaks, by the way, King James English. That's how... God speaks. And God never did that for me. I never had this like dramatic moment that decided that I was supposed to do this kind of work. And I've had friends who have these really dramatic, miraculous stories of how God called them to become pastors. But for me, it was, it was much, much simpler than that. Uh, when I was in college, I went to a church. I went to college in Tulsa, and I went to this church. And uh, one day, I was reading through the bulletin. And I was probably reading through the bulletin because I didn't have an iPhone yet, and I was trying to avoid conversation with like strangers around me. Because I just went to church. Like, I was who I was at the time. I just went to church. I probably sat in the back. I didn't really know anyone. I just, I went to church. I liked the music. I liked the preacher. So I would show up most Sundays because, you know, that's what Christians do. And uh, so I, I went to church, and I was reading the bulletin one Sunday, and I saw this announcement asking for um, people to help in the youth group. And for some reason, I said, that looks fun. I think I'm going to do that. And so I checked the box in the connect card that that church had, and I got a phone call from the youth director, and he took me to lunch, and, and, and the youth director asked me, he said, Spencer, what do you want to do? Like, what, you know, you want to volunteer? What do you want to do? And, and uh, you know, I said to him, 
put me wherever you want me, because I thought that's what Christians were supposed to say. I later learned, if the youth director asks you, what do you want to do, you don't say, put me wherever you want me. That's what the lesson of that conversation was. I, I, I grew up that day. Because I said, great, I've got a place for you. Sunday nights, we need someone to co-lead a small group for seventh grade boys. All right. So for the next school year, next nine months, I showed up every Sunday night, and I led a Bible study for seventh grade boys for an hour. (laughs) Here's how that usually went. 30 minutes of trying to stop them from throwing things at each other, 10 minutes, that's being a little generous, but 10 minutes of teaching the Bible, and I don't mean that like consecutive 10 minutes. I mean that spread out from the hour, that's 10 minutes. 20 minutes of wishing that the hour was over and like a 30-second prayer at the end is kind of how each one of those weeks went. But I kept coming back week after week after week after week and slowly doing that over the course of a year, something began to dawn on me. And I don't mean it like I had this epiphany where the light switch went off and all of a sudden I saw clearly, but it was more like, like a dimmer switch started to, to turn. I'm more of a dimmer switch person in my life. Maybe I'm a little, little dim-witted sometimes, but I'm more of a dimmer switch person, and the, the dimmer switch started going on more and more and more in my life, and I realized this is what I want to do. Not teach seventh grade boys Bible studies, but what I want to do is I want to teach people the Word. I, I want to help people develop. I, I want to see people come alive to what it is that God has for them. And, and I realized, like thinking back on it, it's not one of those things you realize in a moment, but it's one of those things you realize like five years later, you have some of those things in life where it's like, in retrospect, I realized what God was doing in my life. And in retrospect, what I realized what God was doing was, was he was teaching me that I had gifts and I had a purpose in my life, but the only way I was going to find that purpose was when I started to use my gifts for the sake of his people. Like before, I went to church, and I liked the music, and I liked the preaching, and it challenged me, and I thought about things, but it wasn't until I got my hands dirty and started building relationships with people and using my gifts that I didn't even know I had to start developing people that I discovered, here's my big word, I discovered purpose. And I got to tell you, when you start to get a feeling of purpose in your life, you just become hungry and hungrier and hungrier for more of that. Like, I want to fulfill what it is that God has made me to do. And and I discovered that when I started to receive this gift of the church. When I started to build relationships with people and started to get beyond just coming to church on Sunday and sitting in the back and not really talking to anybody and just liking the music and the preacher. But when I started to develop that and use that, I discovered that, wow, God has this whole other thing for me. I'm this deep believer that if you want to grow, actually grow in your life, like, you've got to discover your gifts. You've got to use them for, for, the, for those purposes. Like, this is what the gift does for us, is it helps us to grow this gift of one another. Which brings me to the second way I want to unpack this idea that the primary way that God is going to grow you in your life, the primary way that God is going to strengthen you and ground you and, and, and speak to your purpose in life is through the church. Another way I want to unpack this is that there is this word in the New Testament. It's used 95 times. So the New Testament is 27 books. This word is used 95 times, and it is one of the key words that is used to describe the relationship that Christians have 
um, and, and, the, and the how, what it means to follow Jesus. This is like one of the key descriptive words of what it means to follow Jesus. It's used 95 times. And remember, the New Testament wasn't written in English. It was written in Greek. And so the Greek word that you find 95 times throughout the New Testament, this key core word is this. We have it for the screens. It's this word, alelon. Usually it's translated as one another. 95 times the Bible talks about how Christians, followers of Jesus, live in relationships with, nine, with one another. Let me give you some examples of this key, key word, this core word to what it means to follow Jesus. Here's just a few examples. It's 95 times in the New Testament. I'm only going to read to you 88 of them. <laughs> Here's just a few examples. Mark 9, be at peace with all alone, one another. Romans 12, be devoted to one another in love. Romans 12 again, honor one another above yourselves. Galatians 5, serve one another in love. Galatians 6, carry one another's burdens. Ephesians 4, be kind and compassionate to one another. Colossians 3, bear with one another. 1 Thessalonians 4, encourage one another. 1 Thessalonians 5, build up one another. James 5, don't grumble against one another. James 5, again, don't, con or I'm sorry, confess your sins to one another. James 5, 16, pray for one another. John 13, 34, love one another. John 13, 35, love one another. John 15, 12, love one another. John 15, 17, love one another. Romans 13, 8, love one another. There's eight more of those. I can stop there though, right? You get the point. 95 times in the New Testament, there is this word. And the word is describing what it looks like for followers of Jesus to live faithfully. And over and over and over and over again, the New Testament describes how we are to live with and for one another. Like there is this pervasive idea in the Bible that if you want to grow, that if you want to discover God's gifts for you, that if you want to discover God's purpose for you, that if you want to discover what it is that God has for you, you're going to discover that in the context of the church. There is this gift that God has given to us, and this gift is one another. It's gifts of relationship, it's gifts of caring, it's gifts of fellowship. It's, it's the gift that we have in belonging to what we call a church family. It's one another. And, and this is a gift that, that if you are going to be somebody who navigates change, you're going to have to discover this gift. Because as I've been talking about this this morning, I know that there is this temptation to hear this idea that the church is important, and you think to yourself, yeah, that's a very simple idea. I, I get it, Spencer, the church is important. I should come to church and do things like that. And, and there's this temptation, because this idea that I'm presenting this morning is so simple, to just kind of dismiss it. And, and when we dismiss it because it sounds so simple, we, we run a, a very um, real risk because what I've discovered is that I've been a pastor for 15 years. I know that's not like a tremendous amount of time, but it's long enough where you've learned a few things. And in 15 years, I've served in small churches. I've served in big churches. I've served in really big churches. I've served in rural churches. I've served in suburban churches. I've served in urban churches. Like I've been across the gamut. And, and I've seen in, in every church I've been in, I've, I've seen this pattern that begins to develop. You see, there's, there's a, a reason, a consistent reason that I've discovered why people leave churches. 
And uh, from my experience, this isn't like scientific data. I'm not going to put any stats up on the screens or anything. But from my experience as a pastor, what I've discovered is that there is a common, consistent reason that most people leave churches. And it has very rarely, very rarely do people leave churches because they're mad or, or because they disagree with theology or, or because the church made a decision that I didn't think was the right decision. Almost every time, I'm talking like 90%, again, not scientific, just my own observations, I've discovered that the majority reason of why people leave churches is usually because change happens in life. And so I said this is like a simple idea that the church is important and it's this gift that God has given us. And we need to hear this because what usually happens is change takes place in life and this is the time where you need the church the most And yet this is the time when many people drift away from the fellowship. I mean, think about it. You've seen it. A family member loses a loved one. And in their grief, when they need the church the most, they kind of pull back. It's very common. Or or think about someone goes through a divorce and it was their church, and now it can no longer be his or her church, and, and now you know, the family is, is pulled away from the fellowship. It's pulled away from the relationship. A change has taken place. They're in a season of change, and, and this is where the sacrifice. They need it the most, and yet this is when they pull away. A, a church receives a new pastor, and people are wondering, is this the future for me? There's a season of change that takes place, and this is a reason why some people will, will pull away from the relationships that, that take place. And it's not, usually, it's not always just bad changes that, that pull people away. Sometimes it's good changes. What do you think is the most common time that people leave the fellowship of other Christians? How about when they graduate high school? It's a change that takes place in life, and all of a sudden, they're drifting towards new things. Or, or think about the family who all of a sudden, they're in a new season of life, and, and now all of the soccer tournaments are on Sunday. Or, or the family who becomes an empty nest family, and they have this extra time and money on their hands, and they start to travel, or they buy the lake house, which are blessings, and, and, and they're not bad things, but, but they start to pull people away. See, see the, the number one reason people leave churches is not because they get mad or, or because they disagree. It's because they, they, they drift. They drift, they, they let go of the relationships, and, and before long, they, they, they stop attending as often, they get disengaged from their Sunday schools or their small groups, and, and, and they just, they, they, they've just drifted. And almost always what I've discovered is that the catalyst for that drift is that there's some sort of change that took place in life. Like there's this gift that God has given you in one another, and, and yet the temptation is to leave this gift when you need it the most, which is why this is not just a simple um, idea, it's, it's a pivotal idea. That if you want to be someone who navigates change well, you, you have to be grounded in the community, the fellowship, the family, the body of Christ. You have to be grounded in, in what this means because it, it's impossible to live a Christian life on your own. You, you, you have to be grounded, grounded in those relationships. And so friends, this morning as, as we think about this um, this, this principle of change where we need one another, I want to speak to two groups here this morning. First of all, I want to speak to anyone here who might be on the edge. And I, and I know there are people here who might be on the edge. There, there are some of you here who maybe you've gone through a season of change. Maybe you've been wondering if this is the church for you in the future. Maybe you feel disconnected from what the church is doing or disconnected from other people. Maybe you were like me and you come to worship, you like the preaching, you like the singing, you, you come because of those reasons, but you don't really know anyone. Listen, I just want to offer you a very simple piece of advice. You can take it or leave it, but this is just a very simple piece of advice. Lean in, not out. Lean in, not out. 
lean in, lean in, find a place for you. I know maybe sometimes it's hard to get to know people, but I'm telling you, if you are on the edge, you need this more than you think you do. Lean in, not out. If there's an opportunity for you to serve every week, we stand up and give announcements, volunteer sometime, get to know people. If there's an opportunity for you to go to Sunday school, go to Sunday school, go to your small group, get engaged, meet people around you, invite people around you to lunch or coffee, lean in, don't lean out, because if you are on the edge, listen, I can't tell this strongly enough, you need this more than you think you do. But I wanna talk to a second group this morning too. Because there are some of you here who are so far from the edge, you can't even imagine what it would take for you to drift from the church. You consider this maybe your family. There's a group here who's like, this is my church family. These are my people. I can't imagine not being here on a Sunday. I can't imagine drifting away because life gets hard. I can't imagine that. So if that's you, if this is you and you're bought in, you're sold out for the church, you're sold out for this community, I want to speak to you for just a moment too. Because every single week there are people who come who are on the edge. Every single week, there are people who come who are hurting, who are quest- have questions, who have doubts and fears, and they are looking for somebody to connect with them. Every single week, there's somebody here who's wondering if they're gonna keep coming, if, if, if only someone reach out to me and talk to me. You have a responsibility, if this is you, if you, this is your church and you're sold out for this, you have a responsibility to welcome them, to invite them, to include them. That, that if you see someone who's by themselves, it's, you, you go talk to them, you, you make them welcome, you invite them to, to lunch or coffee, invite them to your Sunday school class or to join you in, in whatever ministry you do, include them in the work because this is so vital. God is looking to change people's lives and he's gonna do it through us. We all have a role to play. Every single one of us has, has a responsibility, has been given gifts, has been given the honor of, of being used by God for this purpose and so I just wanna tell you this morning, There is a gift that God has given you. And if you utilize this gift, if you participate in this gift, if you receive this gift in your life, God is going to change your life through it. And I'll say that because God has changed my life through it. And this is the gift of the church. I believe it wholeheartedly. And I'm just asking you this morning to receive this gift, to think about this gift, to think about the role that you play in this gift, to lean in, don't lean out, to reach out to others who maybe are on the edge, Maybe people you haven't seen in a while, but to take responsibility because this is our church. This is our ministry. This is our family. And God has called us to be here with one another. Let's pray today. Lord, I thank you today. I thank you for your church. The body of Christ, those who have been redeemed by his blood, that we stand here together because of the good news that the grave is empty. And as followers of Jesus, we recognize that this gift that you have given us in one another Lord, we don't want to squander it. We don't want to take it for granted. We don't want to think that, that we don't really have to participate in order to get the benefit from it, but really, Lord, we want to jump in with both feet. And we want to say, would you use us? Would you speak to us? Would you ground us? For, for my friends here this morning who maybe don't know anybody, maybe they feel lonely or isolated within the context of this church, God, would you send somebody to speak to them, to share with them the good news, to share with them, include them into the relationships for my friends here this morning who, who are sold out and bought into the church, Lord, may we be the kinds of people who reach out radically to include other people in this work that you are doing together because there's this gift that you've given us and it is vital as we navigate change together. It's vital for us to be grounded, to be strong, and to grow this gift of your body, this family, the church.
We give this gift to you, this church to you. We just give you thanks. In the name of Jesus, our Savior, who rose from the dead, we pray. Amen.